nearly quarter past 12. So once again, I must invite you to join us on Facebook Live because it's marshy movie time. Hello, James. How's it cooking? Uh, it's cooking on gas. It's great. Brilliant. <laughs> I'm, I'm do- doing as well as I can. What's Netflix got going this week then? Uh, yeah, they have quite a lot, which is good because there's not a great deal on in the cinemas right now. They're, you know, Hollywood is not giving us anything at all. So local distributors are really scraping the bottom of the barrel. I mean, there's a few, a bit of promise on the horizon. I mean, there are a couple of local festivals are happening. The International Film At Festival the didn't happen this year. Yeah, well, uh, yes, yeah, so, uh, you know, on the condition, obviously, that cinemas stay open, and for the time being, they are staying open. Uh, the Obviously, the IFF didn't happen this year, uh, but what that did do is it freed up a lot of uh, films so that uh, the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival yeah. could, to some degree, pick, pick up the slack. Um, I should note that the the IFF is doing a, a sort of mini event called Cinefest, which is happening right now, but the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival takes place at the end of this month going into November, and for those of you who want sort of some more art house Asian fare, have a look at their listings um, you know, their website is up, they've got a Facebook page, what have you uh, there is some potentially interesting stuff, I haven't really seen anything obviously that's going to be on there, yeah. but there is some sort of potentially interesting stuff for people who want to uh, look for something a little bit more. Yeah, support them. I mean, that's a good way of supporting cinemas because obviously uh, the cinemas are struggling and that's an issue that's happening the world over. Uh, but yeah, if you can support them in any way, join their membership programs, uh, go to their special screenings. You know, there's, there's a lot of cinema change showing uh, classic old movies at the moment. I see that Casablanca is playing. Um, I is think the Matrix tar- films were playing. Tarted up version, da da da, 60 frames. I love it when they do this. It would be a restored version, I imagine, that but I think it's I mean. merely, it, yeah, it's simply a case of they've got to put on something. So yeah. why not put on, like, some classics? So uh, that's a great way of supporting your local cinema. And that's a, it's a very real thing right now. If you don't support your local cinema, they might not survive much longer. They might. And you imagine in some countries when, I mean, Hong Kong, we, it's very commercial looking, but a lot of places still got these very old-fashioned places, haven't they? Small, beautiful, yep. and they're in danger of dying. Absolutely. Uh, You know, the UK is a prime example of that. When the biggest cinema chains are talking about bankruptcy and uh, closing sort of hundreds and hundreds of venues around the country, that's happening in the UK, it's happening in the US. Just, but yeah, spare a thought for these sort of almost mum and pup run standalone art house cinemas in small towns uh, that really, you know, were struggling anyway in this multiplex era. And now, you know, even more desperate. Uh, so if if you're... I mean, it's, it's hard to say, because obviously in Hong Kong, there isn't really much of that. No. But if you are somewhere where that is happening and it is open and they are open and they are struggling, uh, yeah, if it's safe and you feel safe doing so... Uh, Get on down. Go, uh, go buy a ticket. Or even just go buy a ticket and then don't go, you know? Give them a bit of cash. But, you know, become a... Join one of their... Join one of their loyalty programmes, become a member... Um, buy a gift card if they do that kind of stuff. You know, just drop a little cash. Wear sunscreen. I've been looking at a couple of bits of movie news, and I think one of them might take you into your first bit of blurb. I'm looking at a news article that Mm. says, what do critics make of the Borat sequel? (laughs) 
I was really hoping uh, that I would have had the chance to see the new Borat film before we got on air today. Um, I wasn't even 100% sure if it was going to be available in Hong Kong or not. We knew that Amazon had bought it and that they were going to be streaming it as of today in the US. And I I was searching the Amazon Prime website just yesterday to find it and I couldn't see any sign of it. And then about half an hour ago, I had another look and it is there. It is there. It's called Borat Subsequent Movie Film for, uh, and then it's got some you know ridiculously long, stupid title for for the betterment of the great nation of Kazakhstan, something. Um, so I haven't had a chance to see it, but it is now there, and so I will absolutely be checking it out probably as soon as we wrap up today, and uh, I will obviously talk about it next week. Well, you had the postman um, come round last week, so you might as well just put it on whilst we're doing your <laughs> review. I'll just put it on now, yeah. <laughs> Do us a favour, whilst we've got a second, take about four or five inches back from where you are, because you're um, doing obscene things to your microphone, which I can't say on the radio. Uh, thank you. That's How's better. that? Is that yep. better? Sounds much better. Mm. Yeah, what do you want to do? Okay, well, um, as, so yeah, Sasha Baron Cohen obviously is the you know creator of Borat, and he's also in one of the big movies that is now available on Netflix. Uh, this is The Trial of the Chicago Seven, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, uh, who obviously is the creator of The West Wing and wrote uh, A Few Good Men and Social Network, and has sort of now become a director in his own right. His first game, his first film, Molly's Game, needed. Um, sort of tightening up a little bit. You know, it was full blown off the leash. Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, yeah. He said, she said, unwe- that what this move. Let's walk and let's talk like this and walk, walk and talk, <laughs> walk and talk, walk and talk for two and a half hours. And it was, it was a lot. Yeah, it was pretty it. good, but it was, it was a lot. Um, so this film, The Trial of Chicago Seven, which is true story of the trial of of seven protesters in 19... Well, they protested the DNC in Chicago in 1968. I believe the trial was the following year, 1969, and it brought up all kinds of sort of freedom of speech and rights to uh, freedom of assembly sure. and the right to the right to protest and all those kind of uh, themes, which sadly are all too, all too uh, relevant today, not only in the US, but also in other parts of the world. Hmm. Um, now... Where was I going to start? Yeah, this was originally a film um, that was produced and was going to be distributed by Paramount. Now, Paramount have really been on the ball about all of all of this sort of COVID uh, flexibility, and uh, they were quick to decide, okay, this is a film that we need to get out there this year. I think they had have some kind of awards, aspirations for it, so they were very quick to sell it to Netflix. Right. So it has now premiered on Netflix and uh, is reaching as wide an audience as possible. And it's easy to see why, because obviously it's very timely. Uh, it's a very sort of worthy subject. It's got a big name behind the camera. Um, you know, Oscar, he, Aaron Zorkin is an Oscar winner. He won for his screenplay for The Social Network. And it has a packed star-studded cast. You have Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman. Uh, you have Eddie Redmayne as Tom Hayden. They, mm. they, they were the kind of two, the two star defendants, if you like, uh, together with um, Bobby Seale. Now, Bobby Seale was the head of the Black Panthers at the time, and he was sort of thrown in with the Chicago 7. He didn't really have anything to do with them. Apparently, he wasn't really in Chicago at the same time, but they the... Uh, prosecution wanted to kind of spice up this rather bland, white-looking line of defendants and give the jury something that they could um, be scared of, 
is what Bobby Seale signals himself out as. He's, this guy's play. This is played by um, he's played by Yaya Abdul Mateen the uh, second. Now he is a sort of recent up and coming African American star who just won an Emmy for his performance in HBO's Watchmen show. Mm. So he's a he's a hot thing. So you uh, you know those are the probably the big names on the, of the defendants. You've also got Mark Rylance as the Brilliant. defense uh, lawyer. You've got Joseph Gordon-Levitt as chief prosecutor. You've got brilliant turn from uh, Frank Langella as the the judge, who is just no nonsense to the point of being you know wildly prejudiced in favour of the prosecution. You know he's quite outrageous the way he sort of throws around uh, contempt of court violations and what have you. Uh, you got Michael Keaton in there. Uh, you know it's pretty every every new character who is introduced is played by like someone you recognise. Um, so it's incredibly star-studded. What I will say is because it's Aaron Sorkin, yep. you know, he has a tendency to have his characters uh, all talk like Aaron Sorkin. He's yeah. a bit like Tarantino that way. He's not very good. Uh, or Woody's style. You, you, it's similar. Yeah, yeah. Woody, yeah. Woody Allen, Tarantino, Aaron Sorkin, they're, they're all of a similar uh, approach to drama in, in as much as they... Um, yeah, all their characters speak the same way that they do. They do. Um, and also it has a sort of a slight sort of theatrical element. So the characters are drawn quite broadly, I would say, and uh, the, the drama and the humour and everything all has a sort of, uh, sort of less, less than realistic quality to it. There is a sort of, yeah, an, an element of theatricality to it all. But to be perfectly honest, that makes it much easier to watch, you know, and sometimes particularly when dealing with some heavy topics, it's, you know, it's not a bad thing necessarily for, for it to be more palatable, you know, made more palatable. It doesn't really sugarcoat it, but at the same time, it doesn't feel the need to go into the real sort of nitty gritty of it. I found it incredibly entertaining uh, and it was a specific part of the whole um, protest, you know, these protests, these 1968 protests that I wasn't too familiar with it. I, I hadn't heard of the Chicago 7 before, I've got to be honest. Mm. Although I had heard of the parties that they represented, like the Yippies and obviously the Black Panthers I knew about. Uh, so I think it does a pretty good job. Whether or not it will um, get some awards attention later in the year, it's impossible to say right now. Power I think, cast. Um, boy, oh boy. It's a power, it is a power cast. I mean, award season this year is going to be so weird. As it is, but I think you've got you've got a good shot for like Eddie Redmayne. I think uh, Mark Rylance has a good shot. I think Yaya Abdul Mateen has a good shot. Um, and it, you know, and I, I do get the impression that Netflix is going to try and push it. But um, it's, hey, let me ask you a question, if I may, about awards time. Yeah, where does it leave them when mm -hmm. pretty much everything is going to be coming from Netflix? Well, good eighty plus percent, I should imagine. Well, that's I mean that's fine. As far as the Academy is concerned, that is fine. All films need is sort of a week-long theatrical window in um, in New York and L.A. Uh, they have to play for a week. Right. Um, I think what they've done is they've said that this year they don't need to do that, and they've also extended the eligibility window uh, until the end of February. So I don't think the Oscars are going to be happening until April. And uh, so that's going to give the studios just that little bit more time. So if uh, cinemas are sort of open again around Christmas time mm -hmm. into the new year, they can push out all of their big titles 
early 2021 and still qualify. Um, there, there has been some talk of just not doing the Oscars at all, and I think that's just unfair because there's, there are plenty of films that are coming out, you know, and it's going to be an opportunity for smaller films to get a look in, I think. Yeah, and, but you know, imagine being, an audience. you know, 1972 Olympics all over again when the big boys decide they don't want to take part, I think it was, by the way, um, and somebody has to win, and, of course, they win technically, but because someone else has binned it. Uh, well, you know, I mean, I don't think people are being excluded. I think this is more inclusive, if anything. If people want to sort of, yeah, like you say, sort of boy boycott this year, <laughs> um, then that's that's on them. You know, I, I, where I have a problem is when they start, uh, when, when tokenism starts coming in and when they start saying, oh, well, in order to, you know, where they start making amendments to the rules to increase inclusivity, I think, then it becomes strange. Like there's talk of having like you must have at least one woman in the best director category. Who wants to be that woman? I'm still you know? getting over the boys and the band thing you told us about the other day. You know, you have the, the what was it? Had, it had to be a gay actor, which kind of goes against the grain. I don't want to get into it with you, but it did get me thinking. I mean, actors act. That's their job. Mm. You know, whether they're gay or straight is irrelevant. But, you know, you must be gay to play this part of a gay person. But then to, to quote Lawrence Olivier, you could always act. I think. I mean, it, it's it's a very very difficult situation. Yeah. I think it comes from a it comes from a good place. I think it's when you're from a sort of a minority group, whatever that might be, and you see yet another straight white guy playing your part. Now, whether that's the, a gay oh, a gay role issue. or a trans role, well, it's not. And I think it because it, it all comes from that. And so I think they're they're trying to protect those roles. Uh, but they're perhaps going a little bit too far to protect those roles. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, it's all very well about your sort of uh, preferences and this, that and the other, but it just gets silly if you follow it logically. Next remake of The Elephant Man, we really need somebody with that affliction. Or uh, you must be a dragon, in fact, to be in this next movie about dragons. OK, I'm being ridiculous. I, but that's... I agree. <laughs> I agree. There is, there's clearly a line. Acting uh, is about we... taking on the persona of somebody else. Anyway, James, it's, sure. you know, it got me thinking a lot. Yeah, no, I, one thing I just want to clarify, I don't think when they were casting the boys in the band, they said you have to be gay. Who knows, maybe they did. Um, I, I doubt it. But it, all I was going to say is that for certainly for the new production, sure. um, I, believe, I believe all of the actors in it are gay. Well, what do you know? <laughs> I don't know what you mean. Never mind. Uh, I'm just interested okay. in the whole issue about <laughs> actors. You know, that's what they've trained for many, many years sure. to do, and they do it very well. I no, I agree. I agree. I, and I think to a, to a degree, everybody should be, should be able to play anything, and you should get the best person for the role. Steve yeah. joins us on Facebook Live. Sorry, I didn't mean to step on you. He says, "Does someone no, need to be a, some, He says, "Does someone need to be a priest to in order to play a priest, a lawyer in order to play a lawyer?" And this is where it gets mm. silly. But I know exactly what Steve's on about. Shall we now just say we'll put this one away because otherwise we'll be here. <laughs> Well, the one thing I will say is that, you know, another issue that's been in the news recently is that Ron Howard announced that he wanted to do a documentary about Lang Lang, is it? The classical musician? Pianist. The Chinese classical musician? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I knew you'd know who I was talking about. That's why I brought it up. And um, Lulu Wang, who's the director of The Farewell, got upset. Why? You know, vocally upset about it because Ron Howard got the job and he's yet another straight white man. And she was saying, surely... You know, a Chinese person, perhaps even herself, uh, would have a better would be a, would it be a better fit 
for that documentary. Did you say um, exactly why? I mean, I promise I'm not being facetious. I'm just curious. Um, I don't know what exactly she said, but it was probably something along the lines that would have a better understanding of uh, the culture, I think is what she was getting at. Um, my only question to that is, well, who are you showing or intending to show the film to? You know, and if you're intending to show the film to a global audience, then what, what difference does it make who's making it? You know, but then, but you know, it's it's a very dangerous minefield because at every turn there's a counter argument. Yeah, I know there really is. It's very interesting. Mm. But uh, funnily enough, mm. I'm just thinking. You know, Lang Lang studied overseas. I believe he makes his home overseas. I mean, whatever. He's a brilliant player, and this is what. Actors do. You remember the whole thing, talking of pianists, we've got to go to the news. David Helfgott, who played Shine, played brilliantly by Jeffrey Rush, and, mm. it, was, and it was a cracking biofilm. And that is that, really, isn't it? Anyway, what do you want to do after the news? Because I've got to push the button in just a second. OK, well, we have a remake or a new adaptation of Rebecca by Ben Wheatley. Ooh, uh, we yes. also have the, the Doorman... And the war with Grandpa. Lovely. Sit tight, James. If you want to join us, we're on Facebook Live, and as always, Morning Brew is our page. Weekday Musings, 9.30 till 1. The Morning Brew, on Radio 3. Rock and roll. What do you want to get on to now, James? Uh, let's do Rebecca. Right, join us on Facebook Live if you want to chime in. Rebecca's an absolute classic. It's been done and done and done. Sorry, I had to say that. Ginza knife, today and today only. <laughs> All yours. Mm. Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> okay <I'm> done <laughs> uh right yeah so rebecca uh by ben wheatley on netflix this is yes but the latest adaptation of daphne du maurier's uh classic uh piece of sort of gothic literature you know one of the you know big fan my i am a big fan of sort of gothic literature and that whole sort of gothic horror uh genre you know where that all came up uh we were talking about it just the other week with mm. um the Haunting of Bly Manor, which is the new adaptation of uh, The Turning of the Screw, yep. which was is another one. And there's a lot of very uh, similar sort of DNA in Rebecca and in Turn of the Screw. You know, some of the, you know, from the setting to uh, the mood of it all, you know, it, it is sort of very, very similar. So um, I want to say right from the get-go, yes, Daphne du Maurier's novel is an absolute classic. And yes, Alfred Hitchcock's 1940 fil film is a masterpiece but uh no it is it it is a it is a masterpiece and uh you know no i i would be very surprised if a film ever comes as as close to being that good again you know an adaptation it comes that close to being that good again or uh it is loved more what i will say of course is that every time somebody makes a new adaptation of a beloved work it does not replace the existing versions of it brilliant you know? music so too by franz waxman the absolute business score listen to it freak you out right right so i mean so i have very little time for people who have these these knee-jerk what do we need a, another a remake for reactions because why not you know it doesn't replace it's, it's a remake it's not it's not a replacement uh as long as you bring something new to it. Got it and so here we go uh so ben wheatley is very sort of strong promising up-and-coming uh british filmmaker he is fast becoming something of a pillar in the community he's very well respected very well regarded not only for his filmmaking abilities but also for his knowledge of the industry uh he's got sort of very sort of 
deep uh, respect for particularly some of those folkloric kind of horror films, mm-hmm. things like The Wicker Man, oh, Witchfinder yeah. General, you know, um, those sort of classics of, of sort of the 60s, or that, that sort of golden era, post-war era of, sort of British cinema. He's incredibly well knowledge, uh, well versed in all of that, and uh, you know is becoming sort of quite a powerhouse in the industry. Um, his version of Rebecca again takes place, you know, in the in the in the sort of 1930s, uh, but is done in an incredible sort of Technicolor version of it. So you get to really enjoy sort of Monte Carlo and those beaches and cliffs and country clubs and the hotels where sort of the opening of the film takes place and then when we get to Manderley in uh, I think it's supposed to be Cornwall isn't it where the big the big house is I think it's somewhere it down is. there it looks it looks sort of absolutely magnificent and you've got these great sort of foreboding cliffs and the stormy seas below and um you what you do get is uh the interiors have a sort of a new lease of life you know you, the colors of the portraits and the paintings which obviously play a very integral role in the film uh the interior decor of this sort of great old sort of you know not exactly haunted but sort of certainly sort of possessed uh stately home uh, all of that kind of has a new layer to it because it all, is all now sort of seen in ravishing color Purists will always say, yeah, yes, but Gothic, this kind of sort of Gothic romance needs to be done have in black and white. you had an argument white. with somebody about this in the last 24 hours? I'm, kind of no, sounds like you have. Pre- <laughs> I'm just sort of preempting all of the knee-jerk responses that you hear time and time again with things like this. Join us on Facebook Live for a knee-jerk response. Our phone yeah. lines are open. Have, have at it. <laughs> so this, this version, uh, you have Lily James as... Um, as our female protagonist, who actually is never given, famously is never, we never learn her name, but she quickly becomes the new uh, Mrs. De Winter. She meets uh, young eligible widower Max De Winter while mm-hmm. holidaying down in um, in the south of France, where she is working as sort of a, a lady's companion for this rather stuffy old old woman, uh, and is swept off her feet by Max De Winter, and he marries her up and takes her back to Manderley, uh, where. He, you know, he has a big sort of household staff, not least run by Mrs. Danvers, who is this very imposing, scary uh, house. I don't know what you call her. Not, not a housemaid, but she's like the, the woman who runs the house. Mm. Um, played here by Kristen Scott Thomas. Now, of course, the big problem is that he is a widower and that he uh, has lost his wife uh, a year or so before under mysterious circumstances. We're not entirely sure why. Our female protagonist does not know why. Uh, he won't talk about it. But she was Rebecca, and she was sort of beautiful and brilliant and just the perfect hostess and uh, the perfect lady in all regards and was absolutely adored by Mrs. Danvers and seen, seemingly by everybody. Yeah. And then into her stead comes this sort of young commoner woman played as i said here by lily james who mm-hmm. is a nobody you know and everybody just uh looks down their nose at her and it's about her uh response to that uh, you know dealing with a a man who has sort of swept her off her feet but now who she finds increasingly sort of difficult to live with mm. uh whilst being sort of largely abandoned in this massive sort of prison if you like in the middle of nowhere uh surrounded by people who don't like her don't take her very seriously and uh are constantly comparing her to this kind of mythological figure who 
you know, this is how the film plays into sort of the gothic elements of the story, haunts Manderley. You know, Rebecca is this ever-present spectre over absolutely everybody and everything, although obviously she is dead and no longer there. Um, So, yeah, I think... The film is incredibly, I think, well cast. Lily James does a great job. I think Army Hammer is perfect as uh, Max De Winter. Kristen Scott Thomas obviously is brilliant. Uh, you know, we've seen her do this kind of thing before, yeah. but she's absolutely in her element, playing sort of the very stiff and curt and uh, unwelcoming Mrs. Danvers. Uh, and I think that the lush photography does sort of add something it's it's certainly a very different experience from watching the old hitchcock film which i did rewatch fairly recently actually um but i think i think there is something to it uh wheatley is not afraid to add his own little sort of visual flourishes every now and again he certainly sort of wants to play into the horror elements of the story uh you know there are sort of spooky shadows and dark corners there is a very sort of foreboding flock of crows, is it, maybe, that our, our protagonist keeps seeing, sort of looming over everything. Is that sort of the spectre of Rebecca? If, is, is it sort of a uh, portent of something bad to come? Um, that said, yeah. you know, it, it isn't going to... No, that's not what I said. It, is go- it isn't going to replace the Hitchcock version. It is not going to become the definitive version of this story because that, that version is so sort of firmly rooted in everybody's mind. Is that why it might get panned? I'm reading as you're talking and the reviews aren't brilliant and I'm wondering how much of them are weighted because of what you've just said. Well, this is, this is why I wanted to start with the prejudice you know, is that there are going to be a number of people who approach this film going, "I'm not going to like this." Yeah, you know, course. this isn't going. This isn't going to be any good because De Maurier, Hitchcock, Olivier, yeah. Fontaine. You know, because of all of this, um, you have to approach these things with an open mind if you're going to approach them at all. Otherwise, just don't bother. Um, you know, and so I think if if you find yourself coming with with all of this sort of baggage then perhaps don't bother but if you're willing to sort of have an open mind and see a new interpretation and be willing to go on this sort of journey with with Wheatley and his characters and experience it in a new light for a dare I say for a new generation uh then I think there there is some some uh, legitimate strengths here you know well like I've said performances the technical aspect does show it in a, in a new way and uh, and at the end of the day it's a cracking story and yeah, whoever yeah, is yeah. telling it it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Pr- it's pretty hard to uh, to muck this one up all right mate what else have you got for us today okay speaking of mucking things up uh let's do let's do the war with grandpa oh yeah yeah which okay is the new f- even the pictures new give- film <laughs> yeah new film from robert uh, with robert de niro yes does he have a number three uh, yeah, in this I've... one? You remember? A number three? Never mind. You have to see another. Yeah, carry on. This is it's his sick humour. It's his okay. filthy grandpa humour. That's all. Uh, oh no, this is not that okay. at all. Okay. Uh, so you know, it's it really worries me or concerns me. I mean, growing up, De Niro was my favourite actor. Yeah. And I think that it, it, it's rather upsetting that there's a whole generation of people growing up now 
who only know Rob De Niro as, oh, he's that old guy that does all those rubbish comedies. Because obviously like anybody just... who's aware of his... Mm. Yeah, anybody who's aware of his work through the 70s, the 80s, even into the 90s, knows that he, you know, he earned that title of best actor of his generation many times over. You know, his, his work with Scorsese and with Coppola uh, is some of the best work to come out of that, those decades. Uh, and it really is quite disheartening to see... I mean, everybody's got to work, you've got to make money, yada, yada, yada. There aren't really, you know, that many great roles for men over a certain age. Fine. But to see him so frequently debase himself <laughs> and sort of destroy his legacy, if you like, with this kind of thing, whether it's the smutty stuff like what you're talking about, Dirty Grandpa, yeah. whether it's just the, the, intern. the mindless... Maybe he likes doing it, though. Actually... Well, the intern, I think, is actually quite decent. I think his performance in that, because this is this is what I was going to. This is almost the most disheartening thing about it is that he doesn't really kind of sleepwalk his way through this stuff. It's almost it's almost more depressing because he you can see that he's actually trying, yeah. and that he's actually putting the this work in and putting the effort in. Yeah, you know, and some people will be like. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Because he's, you know, he's a professional. He's an actor. But it, for me, that almost makes it all the more heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's not just doing it for the money, but he's actually showing up and and putting the effort in to something that is more than slightly subpar. And this is a prime example. Okay. So, the War with Grandpa <laughs> is a is an adaptation of a, a apparently very very popular, well loved children's book from the nineteen eighties. Written by Robert Kimmel Smith, uh, and it is about uh, an, an elderly, uh, newly widowed man who is struggling on his own. And so his daughter, uh, played here by Uma Thurman, says, "Well, come and live with us. You know, see out your final years with us. You know, Mum's died. You might, you're obviously struggling. Come and live with us." But in order for him to do that, twelve-year-old Peter has to give up his bedroom and move up into the attic, and he's not too happy about that. Okay. And so he decides to wage war on his grandpa in order to win back his bedroom. And that's it. That's the premise of the movie. And so what you get is a kind of sort of almost Home Alone style (laughs) uh, succession of sort of pranks and practical jokes and sort of booby traps and slapstick humor as they agree to this war on the condition that they keep it secret and nobody else knows about it in the family home where they're just kind of pulling pranks on one another and it very quickly escalates and but by the end of the thing the house is a mess and the emergency services have been uh used one too many times at a great expense one can only imagine to the tax taxpayer uh, but guess what? By the end, maybe they'll have all seen something in each other and learned something about life. Blur. Yes. Um, I, ha- I haven't. I haven't read the children's book, but I have read about it, and that had a very sort of simpler sort of premise. It, things didn't get out out of hand quite so much. However, there does seem to be a kind of subplot about the fact that the grandfather was a, a war veteran, and so these notions of uh, so violence and war and violent retribution and revenge on one another are raised and it is something of a teachable moment for the child. There's no, there isn't really any of that in this. They just escalate the antics in order to try and get a few cheap gags. Right. Uh, also, what appears, what appears to have been added mm-hmm. 
is a whole is a whole sort of subplot for De Niro's character where he's got some old mates that he likes to go hang out with. Played here by Cheech Marin and Christopher Walken. Now, as far uh, as I can see, this this is the first time Christopher Walken and Robert De Niro have worked together since The Deer Hunter back in '78, uh, which was you know a pretty high mark in both of their careers. And to, for them to be reunited all this time later in this and you know, and they don't really do anything substantial. There's uh, Jane Seymour from Live and Let Die, got to get a Bond reference in there, uh, is on hand as a kind of potential love interest. But even those scenes where you've got these great sort of veteran performers sort of just having fun, pulling pranks, pretending to sort of be young again, even those scenes are just written so sort of poorly, so sort of lazily thought out that they don't even help. All right, I think it's time to move on. I just want because obviously you've made your point on this one. I mean, Gary says if I was De Niro, I wouldn't care what people think, and I suspect that's his angle. He's just enjoying his life. I mean, two different issues, of course. Yeah, but it does seem that way. Yeah, no, it? I, <laughs> it it certainly does. I mean, I just thought it was so heartbreaking when last year. I, well, I will just end with this. Last year we saw The Irishman. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a fair, I mean, it's it's fairly divisive film, but you know, Scorsese and De Niro reunited this great sort of four-hour crime saga, which is on Netflix and it's well worth checking out if you haven't seen it. And what you saw there is De Niro give one of the best performances he's given in years, and that was last year. Mm. And the fact that he's so he still capable, <laughs> it's it just makes it sadder. The fact that he's still got it, he can still step up and do these incredible. That's an incredible performance. It's so powerful. It's so moving. It's a real sort of reflection back on his career and you know his entire life in cinema. And then he, then he'll do something. Well, hang on a minute. Hang on. There's something wrong with my picture here. Uh, No, no. I think it's your halo. It's just slipping a bit to the left there. Sorry. I I, know we're good now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let's Mm -hmm. do our last one. We're nearly out of time. Okay. Uh, The doorman is uh, just the latest sort of female lone action movie. Uh, We've got Ruby Rose, who's this sort of androgynous Australian actress who had bit parts in John Wick 2 and XXX and Resident Evil. So she's kind of worked her way up doing sort of legitimate action movies in sort of a small part. And now she's got like a lead role. And here she plays a a traumatised US Marine who comes home and she gets a job as a doorman at a kind of apartment building in New York City. And she kicks bottom. Yeah, basically what happens is the Easter holidays, the building empties, apart from one or two apartments, including the apartment where her estranged family live. Yeah. and guess who guess who rolls into the apartment but some very evil <laughs> European bad guys who are looking for some uh, priceless artworks that are apparently hidden in the walls right. of one of the apartments. So this is the most shameless, low-rent, inept, die-hard knockoff uh, you will find. Sure, uh, you know, it takes, it takes place on a religious holiday. Uh, she is... Uh, you know, a, a a competent action hero who who is um, not supposed to be there. Uh, you've got Euro baddies. Uh, they climb up and down the lift shafts. Uh, they fight on uh, empty floors under construction. But pretty much every scene, beat for beat, you're like, oh yeah, this was in Die Hard. This was also in Die Hard. This was also in Die Hard. But obviously done way way better. Um, it's written. It's not written by him, but it's directed by Ruhei Kitamura, who's a Japanese director, best known for um, sort of these Gonzo action hybrid movies like mm. Versus. He did. Godzilla Final Wars, which is one of the craziest recent Godzilla movies. Um, 
but has since, since moved to the US and the films he's making over there are bad and he's done about three or four now and then he's just not working out and here it just feels so cheap so low rent so poorly executed uh that you know he really needs to go home and ruby rose really needs to go back to whatever she was doing beforehand because her as an action hero it's not working i think that's all she wrote well done mm -hmm. brilliant inwardly digests james thanks very much brilliant stuff as always and thank you to you for getting in touch with us steve says agree gary when you get to his age just enjoy life as i'm sure gary does why don't you have a great week james and we'll meet <laughs> here next friday oh <laughs>